Kids, I want you to grab your Bible. I hope you can find it easily and open with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're going to read this morning a text from verses 5 through 13. Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13. If you could stand with me and let us read the text, we'll pray and, and then we'll listen. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is laying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to, the slave, to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such a great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it should be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are grateful for the privilege to open your word as you reveal to us the person of Christ, the ministry of Christ, and the glory of Christ. And I pray that give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is instructing us this morning. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, before our family relocated to Washington State, some of our family members from California tasked us to go to Washington and find one particular place that builds campers. Everybody in the world knows that the Pacific Northwest is the hub, the capital of all campers. <laughs> so we were tasked to go into a rather small community. It's a community about 30 miles south of Olympia. I know you probably have heard the city of Centralia. It's not necessarily a place where you want to move tomorrow. Uh, it's a great community, and one of the important things for this place is they do build one of the most fascinating campers in the world. The only challenge was that uh, back at that time, uh, we didn't really have much of the GPS abilities, so I printed the map on a, on a piece of paper as we were visiting here, and as we were driving, uh, we really lost all the cell phone connection and trying to navigate by the mountains and trees. Uh, it's one of the things in Washington, no matter where you drive, everything looks the same. <laughs> we finally found the place. We came right before the lunchtime, and we found some people who were able to give us a tour of the camper. Uh, they explained different functionalities, and we took all the copious notes because um, I do not know if any of you know, my family does not necessarily camp, but we had this task to do, to learn about this camper. So as we were driving back, um, it, was hard, it was hard to find the place, and it was even harder to find the road back. <laughs> so we kind of, I 
navigated knowing that is, as we came up the hill, we have to go down the hill. So whatever road took us down the hill, eventually we came to something that looked like a main road. I made a left turn and just proceed driving. And little did I know that the first car approaching me started to signal me with their lights. I just, well, I didn't know I am that familiar or popular here. I don't think people know me. <laughs> well, the, just about a few seconds later, the second car uh, did not simply blink their lights, but they turned blue and red lights. And the voice proceeded to, from the speaker loudly saying, pull, to, pull, to, pull over and stop. As the officer approached, she graciously explained to me, sir, did you know you're going wrong direction? Uh, I apologized uh, for lack of my navigation skills and uh, she graciously helped us to turn around and show us how to find our way to I-5 and eventually find home. What we learn very quickly as we live in this world, beloved, that we all have to deal with authority and all of us, regardless of our attitude toward, toward authorities, we all have to respond to authorities. It doesn't matter who you are this morning. If you are a visitor, if you've been part of Eastridge for many, many years, or if you are just a traveling and you have heard about this great church, all of us have to deal with authority. This is a, one of the universal concepts and principles uh, that is true in every part of the world. It doesn't matter what language you speak, uh, what part of geography do you uh, live in, uh, it doesn't matter what is the country of your origin, all of us have to respond to authority. It is remarkable, as I was reflecting about this truth, this concept of authority is really interwoven. It is a part of this created world. And it stems from the fact that authority itself comes from the triune God where we find amazing harmony of authority and submission between three persons of the triune God. So the question before us this morning as we think about the authority, how do you and I respond to a person who has absolute and all authority on heaven and on earth? What is your response? The text that we read here in Matthew chapter 8 help us to answer this question. As we're going to study this text, here the Holy Spirit through the writer of Matthew, he compels us to respond to Christ's authority in three proper ways. What are they? First, we're going to learn that we must depend on Christ. Secondly, we must believe in Christ. And thirdly, we must submit to Christ. As Matthew writes to the Jews primarily this gospel, and this, in fact, was the first account of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, he presents this gospel of a long-awaited Messiah, the King. The basic theme of the Gospel of Matthew, behold your King. From the verse 1 of the Matthew all the way to the chapter 28 and last verses, we come to meet Jesus, the Messiah, who is the King, who was born from the family or heritage of David. He is the son of David, son of Abraham. He is recognized by the Magi who came from the East, people who were tasked to find and identify the newborn king. That was their job. So they come to find not the Herod, but Christ, Jesus. They worship him as the king. They extol him. 
little bit later on in Matthew, we read that John the Baptist, as he comes, he pronounces or announces the coming of that king. And in chapter 4 of Matthew, we come to, to meet the king himself. He was rather unusual, not like all the kings of his time, because he comes to minister and heal people and to proclaim to them the news of the kingdom, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is very near. So here in Matthew chapter 8, we find ourselves that Jesus, in verse 5, when he entered the Capernaum, Capernaum was a small fishing town on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in the northern Israel. And in fact, for the ministry of Jesus, that was his, uh, the, the mission's uh, statement, or mission uh, place, really, the, the center from which he would go and do the ministry. Every time Jesus would retrieve, he would retrieve back to Capernaum. This is the place where he performed the most amount of miracles. From his place, his reputation, his fame would travel like a smoke from the wildfire across the, the entire Galilee, even to regions of Syria and beyond the Jordan. So we find here ourselves that Jesus enters the Capernaum, and we want to ask ourselves, where does he come from? If we look a little bit up, and I encourage you to keep your Bibles open, at the end of chapter 7, we find that Jesus was teaching on a mountain just on the side of the Sea of Galilee. And at the end of chapter 7, we read that his teaching was unlike of any other teachers because he was teaching as the one who, having the authority. And the rest of the chapter 8 and 9, Matthew will present to us Jesus who exercises his authority through 10 miracles. And first three miracles would be from chapter 8, verses 1 through all the way through verse 17. So the text we read this morning is really right in the middle of the first group of miracles, where Jesus deals with people who were socially unacceptable to the Jewish society. They were outcasts. We meet first men who had leprosy, who was unclean. He had absolutely no standing in the Jewish society. We come across of the second person who was the centurion. And this centurion happened to reside in the city of Capernaum. He was stationed there. And who is the centurion? Centurion was a Roman officer, the imperial Roman officer, the one who occupied the land of Israel. And he was in charge of about 100 soldiers. Uh, we read from many historical accounts that it, it, it was the job of centurions really to to be a backbone of Roman army as they would move their legions, their larger group of soldiers, to occupy or to in, into the area of combat. It was Centurion's job to make sure that his soldiers are ready and disciplined. He was responsible for the ethical uh, as well as for disciplinary issues within his unit. So we read here that when Jesus enters the Capernaum, he comes back from preaching at the mountainside, a centurion came to him. And as centurion comes to him, he implores him. We see here the centurion, even though he was a very wealthy man who received a really high compensation from the Roman imperial government, he is a helpless man. He comes with a plea. He comes in seeking for help. In his day and age, 
he didn't have ability to call Imperial 911, or he didn't have ability to go to the Jerusalem urgent care. He have heard about Jesus. He have witnessed many lives that were touched by Jesus, so he comes and he implores Jesus. What is his plea? Notice in the text this verb, imploring. He comes with an urgent need. He begs Jesus for help. Why? Because next verse, verse 6, tells us of his helpless and desperate situation. What was the problem? He says to Jesus, Lord, my servant is laying paralyzed at home, fearful, tormented. If you read the account in Gospel of Luke, you'll find that by this time, Centurion sends a delegation of Jewish leaders first, and then he sends some of his friends to Jesus next, and finally he himself goes and approaches Jesus. Beloved, this is the person who recognizes he needs to depend on Christ. He recognizes that Jesus is a man, a God-man who has all authority because he had demonstrated that authority by healing many, by casting out demons as he ministered in the Capernaum. So he comes to Jesus with a plea. He had a servant boy, and and that servant, he was in a great pain. We read here in Matthew, he was paralyzed, or he was bound to bed, not able to move. Luke tells us that this servant was at the point of his expiration, sick and about to die. Now, Centurion, while in the Roman army, he would sign an agreement that he would serve for 25 years, he was not allowed to get married. So some would say that this boy was probably the closest to his family. He could, could afford to have servants, but that's about all he could have at this time. He comes with somebody who is near and dear to his heart, and he's helpless. He can't help this boy. So he comes to Jesus. This is a problem beyond his abilities. Without any doubt, probably most of you have experienced something very similar, where you come across a very helpless situation. Where do you turn? Do you turn to your friends? Do you turn to your parents? Where do you go to seek help when all your physical resources at the end? Maybe you're facing that situation right now. Centurion sets an example for us. He comes to Christ. Beloved, yes, it is good for us to encourage and ask our friends to pray, but that's not enough. Do you pray? Do you come and do you depend on Christ? Here, Matthew presents to us Christ who has full authority and compels us to depend on him. A little bit later in Matthew 28, in Matthew 11, verse 28, we read words of Jesus who says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, depend on me. So centurion comes to Jesus and says, Lord, this is my burden. This is my problem. This is my plea. 
Yes, he addresses Jesus with great respect as the teacher, respectable teacher of his time. He heard about the power of Christ and the ability of Christ and his authority to heal, to provide both physical and spiritual restoration. Thus he approaches and presents this problem to Jesus with a total dependence on him. In 1 Peter, as the Apostle Peter was in that situation, a little later he writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, saying, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And he was you in the proper time. How do we humble ourselves? And he continues saying, Casting our anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Whenever you hold on to your anxieties, this is not a sign of anxiety. This is a sign of pride. And true humility recognizes my own limitations and inabilities and comes to the one who has all the resources in abundance to help. Not just that, but he cares for me. He cares for you. Here Matthew presents the authority of Christ and he says, you need to depend on Christ. Where is your place of dependence? Is that in your retirement account? Or is it in your skills, your abilities, your education? Come to Christ. Lean on Christ and depend on Christ. He has not only the greatest authority, he has all the authority on heaven and on earth. And he is the one who is able to help. The authority of Christ compels us first to depend on him. But secondly, as we read in this text, the authority of Christ compels us to believe in Christ. Look with me from verses 7 to 10. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Notice the response of Jesus. He says, I myself will come. This is the emphasis here in this text. We come to see authoritative Christ, the most powerful person in the entire universe who is willing to come, to pause his day and come and meet the need. He's the willing to help, regardless of where you fit in the social class. This is important for us to understand. Jesus answers as a Jewish rabbi to a Gentile officer. And he says, I will come to your home and I will heal. I will administer all needed things for the restoration of your servant. The exalted Christ has sufficient grace and compassion for those who depend on him and believe in him. Maybe you come to East Church and you live here in Pacific Northwest and you think you don't feel in certain layers of our society. I want you to know that Christ has absolutely no partiality. He does not look at your origin, your zip code. He doesn't look at your GPA. He says, come, depend on me, believe in me. There is absolutely no partiality with this great king. This is the wonderful compassion and condensation. He lowers himself 
to bear the needs of others. Now, Centurion was a very humble man. He recognizes that that would be a very awkward social positioning. It would be a very strange answer, especially as he have invested some into the community as he uh, sponsored the building project of the local synagogue. So he says in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. This officer had, not, he had no problem with low self-esteem, beloved, but he demonstrates true humility to us. He says, I'm not worthy. I'm a broken vessel. I'm a Gentile. I'm not worthy for you to come under the roof of my house. But he doesn't stop there. This is not a self-pity. Please notice here in the text. He says, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. This is a remarkable demonstration of great faith. This man, this Gentile officer, he believes the word of Christ. He says, it is not the touch of your body, it is the power of your word. Just say the word, one word is enough. It doesn't matter where you are. You who said the word and created everything that is visible and invisible, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Only a word. Give a command. This is a remarkable recognition of Christ's authority and authority of Christ's word. The only request, he says, I have is give the word. Say the word. Give a command. You don't have to walk to my house. In verse 9, he recognizes and he explains why he believes that way. He says, for I am a man under the authority, with soldiers under me. He recognized the power of the imperial word. The emperors not always were engaged in the combat, but they would always move their troops from Rome by saying a word. This, is, was, this was true then, and it is true today. When the President of the United States, he just needs to say a word as the chief commander of the U.S. Army. So Centurion recognizes that he stands in the presence of the one who has the authority to say the word, and his servant will be healed. He acknowledges that someone greater than the emperor or a president is in front of him. The word of Christ has the authority and power to restore health. Not the touch, but the word. The willingness of Christ. Beloved, as we pause and as we reflect, I want to ask you, do you believe the word of God? No, this is not a question for those who only attend Adventure Club. This is a question for all of us. I know on Sunday morning we will come and we probably will confess, yes, I do believe. What about on Monday morning? When you get a phone call, when things with your job change, do you believe the Word of God at that time? Do you recognize that you also, under the authority of Christ, who is sovereign over you? 
Is the word of God is enough for you? Is it enough while you journey through this world? Or do you respond like Thomas? Unless I see, unless I touch, unless I put my fingers into his wounds, I will not believe. Here, Matthew presents to us the authoritative Christ. Christ who possesses all the authority. And he compels us to respond first by depending on Christ. And secondly, by believing Christ. I want you to notice here in verse 10, Christ's assessment of this confession, confession of this Gentile man. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He was amazed. This was truly a wow moment in the ministry of Jesus. While listening to the confession of this Gentile, Jesus turns around to the crowd in amazement of the faith. He was astonished. The only other time when this word is used is in Mark 6 when Jesus was amazed or marveled at, at the, their unbelief when he leaves the Nazareth. And people who grew up with him should have known better. He marveled at their unbelief. Now he turns around to the crowd and states, this is true, believe me, mark my words. I traveled through the entire Israel. I have not found one person who would have such a great faith. By this time, Jesus spends more than one year of his public ministry. He went to Jerusalem. He already cleansed the temple for the first time. He performed many miracles. He proclaimed many great sermons. And yet no one in Israel would demonstrate such a great faith as this Gentile. This is a marvelous, both on a great side that this Gentile believed, but this is also marvelous and remarkable that people who should have believed, they continue to follow in their unbelief. In the Gospel of John, in, verse, in chapter 1, verses 11, 12, we read, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. There is a danger, beloved, to have spiritual privileges. It is a danger to, have, to be raised in the in a biblically sound church, maybe biblically sound family, and yet not believe. Christ in his authority compels you to respond today. Yes, to depend on him, but also to believe him. It is not enough, beloved, that we come from Sunday to Sunday to this church and we listen to the word of God, we listen to plethora of great sermons. And when Monday comes, we respond in such unbelief. I want to ask you, if Jesus would assess your faith, what would be his statement? In the book of Revelation, the exalted and glorious Christ, he assesses the faith and the standing of the church as he walks among the, the lights or the candlelights that represent the church. 
And he gives the evaluation of every single churches, of the seven churches that surround the city of Ephesus. I know your deeds. I know your condition. And there are, out of seven, only two who receive a very positive affirmation. Five of them receive a warning and a call to repent. Beloved, church in Ephesus, they had a phenomenal teaching. They had the Apostle Paul who established the church. They had the Apostle John who continued to minister in the church. Timothy, the protege of the Apostle Paul, ministered in the church. And yet, to that church, Jesus says, you have a great knowledge. When it comes to your biblical examination, you would score 100%. But when it comes to your application of that Bible knowledge, you're failing. You have left your first love. Beloved, we're not here for the sake of simply knowing the Word of God, but we're here that we may know the Word of God so we may grow in our faith and our relationship with Jesus Christ. Note that centurion did not believe because of the experience. He comes with a great need, and he does not see the result whether his servant will be healed or not. I'm afraid that some of us put that condition before God when we pray, Lord, I am suffering. My family is suffering. I'll believe you if you will do this and this. The centurion comes and believes regardless of the outcome. He recognizes that he is in the presence of the one who has the authority to heal and who allows the sickness to come in my life. So he comes. It does not stop him to come to Jesus. It does not stop him to depend on Jesus. It does not stop him to believe in Jesus. What about us as a church collectively? What would Jesus say about our faith? Maybe you are sitting here and you're thinking, well, I need more experience. Or I need more education. My two degrees are not enough to propel me to believe. Or maybe you need, you're saying, well, I'm not quite convinced that the word of God is the word of God. I need to study all the critics. And if I, I need to find all the answers before I can fully have my confidence in the Word of God. This is not the response of this Gentile centurion. In such a childlike simplicity, he believes the Word of God. He believes the Word of Christ. For some of you, and I trust for all of you, will be working application questions. The question is for us, how do we cultivate this great faith? What does it take? What, what, what is the measurement to, to see? I want to examine, do I have this great faith? How do we do that? It's really simple. Great faith takes God's word, or takes God at his word. God said, and that's enough. God has spoken, and this is sufficient for me. God has declared, I trust him fully. Hebrews chapter 11 demonstrates to us lives of many men and women who did not see the results before they believed. But they came to realization 
Because God has spoken, that is enough. He has declared that is enough. Some of you are struggling with maybe assurance of your salvation. Maybe you need to be saved today. But some of you need to turn to Christ and recognize because he has proclaimed that your sins are forgiven. You take him at his word and you trust him. He is the one who provides not only for this life, but for life to come. And you simply need to trust him. You need to turn to the word of God that is unmistakable, without error. It is clear, relevant, authoritative, sufficient, profitable, and trustworthy. This is what you have in your hands or in your phone. The, the only proper response, you need to believe it. So here, the authority of Christ compels us not only to depend on him, to believe in him, but also to submit to him. Matthew closes this event with a very remarkable and even more compelling challenge for us. He calls us to submit to Christ. Notice here in verses 11 through 13. As Jesus speaks to the crowd that listened to the great sermon on the mountain. I mean, they were, wow, we never heard this. Man, you should listen. I mean, imagine what YouTube would do at that time. How many clicks? They were blown away because they never heard such a teaching. But Jesus turns around to them and says, listen carefully. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many like wise men from the east and like this fellow centurion from the west. Many people outside of this land of Israel will come and will recline in the company of those who believe in the company of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That was a shocking statement to them. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The sons of the kingdom who thought that they are entitled just because they were born in the family of Abraham. They did not need to do anything. You are fellow Jew. It equals you are in the kingdom. And Jesus here says, not so fast. You have to go back and look at Abraham. Abraham was not simply a Jew because he was a Jew. Abraham believed God. Abraham recognized the word of God is enough. He does not see the whole uh, outworking of the promises of God. But because God has spoken, that is enough. And honestly, you, unless you, the fellow Jews would follow an example of Abraham unless you will believe in God's promise and revelation of great king who is redeeming the Messiah. You will not participate with Abraham and fellow faithful saints in the kingdom. You will be cast out. Jesus speaks with equal authority. He is the one who upholds the eternity in his hand. Eternity and the end or the eternality of your own soul. He speaks here very clearly. They, outsiders, undeserved, 
they will inherit the kingdom and the glory. They will enjoy the great feast. He uses the word here, they will recline as if it's a wedding feast. It's a great feast that is presented by all those who came. God is going to provide an amazing meal for them. Isaiah 25, verses 6 and 9, describes where God is going to serve steak and new wine. And this is not a physiology of something that is going to happen in a cloud somewhere in the spiritual realm. Jesus is a firm believer in the kingdom that will take place here on earth. He speaks about for, about the person, real person of Abraham, and he speaks about real kingdom that will take place. If you were to read Matthew, you will recognize that disciples who followed Jesus, they were firm believers. They recognized Jesus is the Messiah, and if he is the Messiah, he is the king, and if he is the king, where is the kingdom? That was their question. Matthew chapter 19 Verse 27, Peter, on behalf of the disciples, says, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What, what then will be there for us? Peter recognized Jesus is the Messiah. He confessed him. You are the Christ in Matthew 16. And here he comes and recognizes, We have bared such a cost. For what end? Where is the kingdom? And Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, that you who followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his throne, on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Peter, the kingdom is to come. You will have your place, but it is not tomorrow. You will be part of that company. But there is a great contrast. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness while people from the east and from the west, they will come and be in the presence of the Father in the great light, at the great feast. The sons of the kingdom who should have been part of the great feast, they will be thrown out. They will be cast out. That is the term of Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden they will experience second expel from which there will be no recovery. They who trusted their ethnical standing in the life of Abraham, they who felt that they are entitled to be part of the kingdom, they who rejected Christ did not see the need to repent and turn to him for the forgiveness of their sins, they will be cast out, removed into the outer darkness while many will enjoy a great banquet in light. Why? Because they were unbelieving people. Here in Matthew, just a few pages further in chapter 11, Jesus concludes his ministry in Capernaum. In verses 20 through 25, this is the conclusion. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. This is their response. And he says, verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted in heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. 
For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, you would have remained to this day. You will escape the judgment of God. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. This is a great contrast. People who had the greatest evidence, the greatest display of Christ's power and authority, they rejected, they did not repent. In light of whole plethora of witnesses, they denounced and they will be cast out in the place will be inherent weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will be a place of great pain and distress. They will lament the final rejection and they will experience the permanent regret. It will be a place of everlasting and irreversible hopelessness. Grinding of teeth is a sign of excruciating pain that they will experience without end. This is a sobering reality and sobering truth that compels us to respond to Christ and his authority in the right way. These people responded to him in the wrong way. So Matthew ends here the text in verse 13 that says, and Jesus said to the centurion, go. It should be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed about six months later. No, just, just making sure that you're still with me. <laughs> I want you to notice when Jesus heals, he heals instantaneously. Unlike the modern healers, when Jesus heals, even from the distance, he says, go, your servant is well. It has happened immediately. Beloved, this is a remarkable power and authority of Christ. This is the word of Christ that demonstrated his absolute power and authority. So here in this text, the Holy Spirit compels us to respond to Christ this morning, to his authority, by depending on him, believing in him, and submitting to him. How will you respond? Let us pray. Our gracious God, there are so many truths in this text. As we look at Christ who humbled himself and who ministered among the people, bearing their infirmities, their weaknesses, who identified himself as, as a mankind and yet fully God. We're grateful that Christ has all the authority, not only for today, but also for tomorrow. We're grateful that Christ is so dependable. We're grateful that Christ is such a firm foundation. His word is without error. 
He upholds the entire universe even today by the word of his power. And he compels us to respond to his authority. I pray, O oh Lord, that all of us who are here, who are listening to your word, that we would walk away as believing, believing the sufficient and trustworthy word of Christ, that we may enjoy the everlasting kingdom, be in the presence of glorious Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would use us to warn those who refuse to believe, those who seek different excuses to cover up their own sin. Oh, Lord, give us grace. And as we turn to the Christ-sufficient sacrifice, as we turn to the Lord's table, I pray that you'd continue to minister to our hearts as we reflect on this truth. Amen.